Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Today's show is sponsored by our friends at Chase Sapphire Preferred. Thank you, guys. We got, a, we got an LA 1-2 punch today. First up, Jessica Kozlow, chef of Squirrel Restaurant in Los Angeles. Can I say it's the coolest restaurant in LA, Bill? Can I say that? Producer Bill Cushion just gave me the nod. She did. I can say that. Coolest restaurant in Los Angeles. Squirrel. Uh, I do really think some of the most innovative food going on. Mostly vegetable-ish, but not vegetarian. And Jessica's hugely influential. And uh, Matt Ducker and I, Matt Ducker from Epicurious, sat down with her and asked her all sorts of questions about how she does what she does and the cookbook she's got coming up. And also, she'll be, oh, she'll be at uh, Feast Portland, a food festival we partner with in Portland, Oregon, September 15th through 18th. I don't know. I kind of really do think it is the coolest food festival going on right now. You should check it out at feastportland.com. And Jessica will be there cooking in the Brunch Village event. But that's not all. We also have on today's show Marissa A. Ross, wine columnist for Bon Appetit. And we met up with her in Las Vegas a little while back, Andrew Knowlton and I, during our... Vegas Uncorked Food Festival, and we talked all things summer wine with Marissa. So uh, let's get started. Here's Matt Ducker and I talking to Jessica Koslow. All right, Jessica Koslow, and first time, Matt Ducker from Epicurious. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. And do you know why Matt Ducker's here, Jessica? I I have a feeling I do, because he wrote the Squirrel Power article uh, in Bon Appetit. He did. That that launched us into some sort of... (laughs) I don't know about that, but... <laughs> it's true. You are the reason. Was that two years ago? This was June Three? 2014 issue. Oh, wow, man. Uh, We're coming up on a two-year anniversary. You and I. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, but yeah, full disclosure, I called in uh, Ducker for sort of reinforcements because I've never been to Squirrel. Wow. I'm like the only person in the food <laughs> industry, in the food world, who has not been to Squirrel. Okay, I think... I think we should change that. <laughs> but I'm elated because I think that we've evolved and we've gotten better and more interesting and we're doing more interesting things. So it's actually exciting because now you get to experience like, you know, tough kid. Confidence squirrel. Yeah, confidence squirrel Co- versus like, will you like me, squirrel? You <laughs> right. know? But Matt was pointing out, which was interesting, was that speaking of your sort of evolution and maturity as a restaurant, that, you know, you guys didn't even start as a restaurant. It was kind of jams, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we started as a, as a jam company, but I think the thing to think about is... You know, when you look at many restaurants, they have a lot of investment behind them. And I started and continue to do Squirrel as myself, as the sole investor. So whatever um, money I had is what I had to work with. So we started out with the jam because I could afford myself and one employee in a space that I didn't need people to come into. And you guys are in Silver Lake, Mm -hmm. correct? I want to make sure I get what what neighborhood do we call it? We'd have to call it East Hollywood. Oh, Okay. Ducker, yeah. Ducker, you're an LA guy. That's what? East Hollywood. Is yeah. that what you call where, where Squirrel is? Really? Yeah, it's the one block uh, south of Silver Lake. Wow. If but you walk it, no up the hill, no one calls it East Hollywood. No though, one, right? no, no one does. That. But cool. you know, to be it lives, politically correct, it, it lives the Silver Lake lifestyle. We are, we are nothing if not politically <laughs> yes. correct on this. Podcast. All right. Yeah, so, so what, when cool. you yeah. first opened, when you started doing Jam, uh, what was your monthly rent at that point? <laughs> so. I feel very fortunate because my landlords are... They love jam and they're just like, well, no. take our payment in jam. System. <laughs> that is definitely not true, but they're in their 90s and my lease is like a two-page document that's handwritten. Right. Wow. And uh, they don't have a 
cell phone, I have to call them or an email Turn, address. Turns out it's not legally binding at all. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of holes in this lease, but my rent started as uh, $2,250 a month. No way. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, A, that's fascinating. B, in New York City at least, I mean, you can't open a restaurant without partners. Sure. It's, it's just prohibitively expensive these days. Yeah. But, yeah. but I mean, even at two thousand two hundred fifty dollars a month, that's a, that's a decent amount of jam. Exactly. I mean, like when you started out, like because you were selling, and now the jam sells for what? What is retail for a jar of? I mean, of it's still the same, jam, pretty much. Which it's is, gone a dollar up, so it's between like thirteen and fourteen dollars. But right. it started at twelve. So it's you, good jam. Can can people buy this online? They can. They can. Where should yeah. they go online to get it? SquirrelLA.com. Squirrel. Squirrel. How do you spell LA. squirrel? <laughs> Incorrectly. S Q I R L L A. So there's two L's kind mm-hmm. of LA dot com. Yeah. Uh, the jam, if you haven't had it, is worth it. And it's so it's so uh not chunky. It's so smooth. Right. Like, how do you it's good? How do you do that? That's I'm not gonna You're not gonna you divulge the secret. Yeah, I want I want you to continue to be surprised. It's, you know? so, so it sort of luxuriates on the toast. Just we just take out. we let I'll tell you this, we we give it the time. Mm. So a lot of times we'll macerate overnight right. and that helps to break pull in sugar and yeah. yeah, break down the fibers and um, make give it the texture. So you literally <laughs> thought I'm gonna start a jam company? Like that's a career? Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. And you had a life before jam, though. I, I mean, did. I, I mean, I worked as a pastry chef in the in, South at a place called Bacchanalia. In Atlanta. And, in Atlanta. A and, fancy high-end restaurant. Yes. Yeah. And we did a lot of you know, work in preservation. And so I think that idea of squirreling things away stemmed from... Oh, that, I just got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, an, that's why it's called squirrel. It's a girl who squirrels. And and you literally, at the time, did you have the notion that it could grow into a restaurant? Or were you like, I'm just going to do a sort of a jam confectionery sort of thing? Yeah, I think it was more, um, you know, I'm so glad that sometimes I work with blinders on that I just like go full force with what I'm passionate about and interested in. Because if I didn't, I think the fear of failure would have probably shattered the dream of starting a jam company. Um but you know, I think coming from a place in the South where uh, you know they have such limited quantities of things, so it's so important to preserve, mm-hmm. whether it's charcuterie, pickles, protein, and coming to California where there was such a huge amount of those things, it really struck me that there was a discord. Um, and so that's really what I wanted to do. I didn't know how it was going to work. Um, and to be honest, I think the cafe stemmed out of that because it... it it needed the support of a place where people came in every day because I was hiding in in those thousand square feet, like making jam, and I was sending them to Nancy Silverton's place, uh, short order at the time. So, but it was it wasn't enough. Yeah. I needed to figure out how to like financially it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that rent wasn't. Uh, it was hard to cover. So cover in jam, yeah. Matt. Could you, for the listener, put squirrel into context in the restaurant world because a couple years ago when you were working at BA you pitched this store and you were so passionate about this restaurant squirrel and I was like well what's the why well you want us to do a whole eight page feature on this place in LA that serves breakfast and isn't even open for dinner and thank you yeah (laughs) and I was just like what um sure why what's so important about it there was this like sense that um you were making breakfast 
happen. I mean, like I think like before all the daytime cafes that have gone interesting and avocado test, and making it interesting, and it's like beyond beyond um, oatmeal and and even avocado toast. I think like there were clever things like your your kabuli. I mean, your kale kabuli that you were doing. Um, you weren't uh, just serving uh, toast. It was thick cut brioche that was kind of like burnt beyond where most people toast their toast so it had like that really great crumb and texture and you're 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 slathering uh, uh creamy ricotta to, to the very edges it's not just like a like a dainty liberal whatever it was it was fun it was bright it was in this part of town that people that I had never been to on my trips to LA. You know, I think I was like, you know, I was a West a, a West Side guy staying in Venice and in Santa Monica and then maybe a couple years later went downtown cuz that's where things were happening and then even further east there's there's Silver Lake or East Hollywood. Let, let I guess. Let it be that Matt's like a softie from the West Side, right? Where, where did you grow up? <laughs> I grew up in Orange County, which is an hour oh, south of, of, of uh, where Jessica's yeah, we've heard of it. And Jessica also grew up in Orange County, so. Oh. Uh, I grew up in Long Beach. But that's wow. Orange, that's Orange County, right? Lo- Isn't that Los Angeles County? Oh, is that Los Angeles County? Just, oh, 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 just on the on the border just I'm just like just trying strong, to be on the border. Just a strong, strong beach, man. Come on, strong come beach. on, Matt. Don't, yeah. try, don't try to pull her into those sea games. Totally, that's that's true. Yeah, Snoop, I guess did not <laughs> yeah. grow up in Orange County. No, so that, that no, totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, but I just feel like when you walked into this place, like you 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 come around the corner and there was a line the first time I went there. Um, and and I went there because uh, Jeremy Fox, the chef in Los Angeles, uh, who has rusted cannon and used to be up at Ubuntu in Napa, and you know, it's vegetable whisperer guy, was really psyched about <laughs> what you were doing. Um, and he was like, "You got to go check this place out. There's a line. There's." Uh, these brightly colored orange tables outside. There's a fun like blue painted wall at the little alcove outdoor at cafe. And then you walk in and it's this, at the time it was half the size of what it is now. Like I don't think you would expand it mm. further over. And it was just like this small little place where there were like a couple chefs working really hard on the line, a uh, an embarrassment of riches of pastries like sitting on the counter and just kind of like, handwritten menu on the wall and I just think like there there was there was something special so we I, and I should point out that it wasn't just me that wanted this story to happen like the entire staff of yeah Appetit except for me way. I was the last guy I was like oh okay. still hasn't been um, there, but it's okay. I think for breakfast and lunch we're used to not you know at dinner time maybe you're used to maybe splitting more and a lot of times at breakfast you want your one dish but in this case you, you each get different dishes so you share them um so I, I like to think of each dish as a meal, and therefore it should be hearty enough to be satisfying. Yeah, and you let's let's talk about Matt mentioned your kabuli, mm-hmm. uh, which is that seems to be a, one of the favorite on, on the menu. Um, and my wife is now obsessed with that dish, and we make it frequently. It's not an easy dish to make. Can you explain how this dish came about? The kabuli came about because I do love kabuli, right? But there's couscous in it, which has. Uh, gluten. Um, and typically there's tomatoes, which are not always in season. No. So um, trying to figure out an alternative uh, for those months where there aren't tomatoes kind of was the reason for the kabuli. We have crispy rice on the menu, which is um, our brown rice, which is uh, laid on sheet trays and dried. So you, so you, just this, because this is like the key move. So explain this. So you make brown rice in a pot. Mm-hmm. And you spread it on a sheet tray, yep. and yep. then and we let it dry overnight. Overnight, walk in. yeah. So, and then, so you got to. So if you're baking this at home, you got to start a day ahead. Yeah, and here's the thing too: is there are alternatives again, which I think goes back to what Squirrel is about in the cookbook too, is that there are alternatives for all of this. So if you don't want to wait overnight and dry out the rice and then fry it the next day. You can cook quinoa and dehydrate that, and it's crunchy. So it adds. How that. do you dehydrate it? 
In the oven. In the oven. Right. Okay. Literally, it takes right. 15 minutes. Like, well, you, you make do it the sound same so thing. fancy when you say dehydrate. I know. You say put it in the oven. Look. Your 90-year-old landlords, they know how to put stuff in the oven. I don't know right. if they know how to dehydrate. Yeah. Well, pulling the moisture out. <laughs> All right. So we do use a dehydrator, but okay. not for quinoa. Right. But you're a professional. I will, yeah. I will say that the first time I made the kabuli at home, you know, I did. we got the recipe and was like, oh, God, this is going to take me a day. It, there's nothing like that kind of fried crispy rice. It's so cool, and it's yeah. a, a well, perfect example of something thing. that's worth the time. It's one of these transcendent dishes. So, and so I, I remember hearing about this. Is is it worth it? So you so you you, you dehydrate it overnight. So you and got this these cool crispy rice bits, and then yeah. you toss that with with um, currants that have been reconstituted with red wine bin, um, and then that reconstituted liquid is used for a dressing, and it has uh, the currants in it with Aleppo and sumac, cauliflower, and chopped kale. And you like, yeah, you sort of like shave, like disintegrate a cauliflower into mm-hmm. little bits, so it blends with the the kale, which is kind of in the place of the herbs that you get in tabbouleh. Exactly. And the currants are kind of in the place of the tomatoes. Um, of the tomatoes. And we in wow. in winter This all makes cut. sense now. In, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In winter yeah. we can add pomegranates because oh that's so awesome. And in summer we could potentially take the currants out and add tomatoes back mm. in. So yeah. just kind of those little things. But I think the thing for the food at Squirrel, yes there are things that are heavy like the ricotta toes. Um, but my palate tends to gear like lighter and brighter. Mm-hmm. And so the question always comes, how do you make a dish that's vibrant and bright yet still feels satisfying and part of it can be adding that crispy rice because it yeah. adds a little bit of that like, well it's funny because like there's right. a crispiness which is like oh this is a little bit bad for me but then there's like the kale and the raw cauliflower sure. yeah. and everything else like no this is good for me uh, yeah I, I think like that dish gets people excited about breakfast in a way that I just don't think people have been excited about breakfast in a long time. I mean, some people are breakfast people and like all they needed, like Adam Rappaport right here, all he needs is like a, a perfect fried egg or, yeah. uh, you know, and, and like that gets him going. But I think like you, you get 20 people sitting outside ordering like five dishes for two people at your restaurant. And I think like that, that is because it's something that people haven't tried before. Yeah. It's maybe like the FOMO feeling, you <laughs> right. know, like, and that happens a lot where, you know, people coming in, they're from out of town, they don't know when they're going to come back, and we don't have eggs benedict, you know, and we have things like sorrel rice and, like, a golden beet soca pancake with horseradish lebna, and, like, where else are you going to find these things? But it's weirdly satisfying <laughs> in a way that, yes, French toast or eggs benedict is, but it's satisfying in a way that you didn't, don't know mm-hmm. or don't expect it. You're kind of, seems like you're surprised. Right, like right. those, the pancakes we have in the magazine, we shot that pancake and they're all crispy and, yeah. and it's just beautiful. It's like a vodka, but I've basically. never, yeah, I've never right. seen that before. Um, one thing Matt and I were talking about was breakfast culture. Um, and I was arguing that LA is kind of uniquely suited to breakfast culture in a way that New York is not because there's so many people in LA who don't work conventional day jobs. They're in this business or that business and they sure. work on projects, but there's like, oh, it's Tuesday morning, you're going to meet a friend for breakfast at 9.30. Mm-hmm. In New York, you're at work at 9.30. What do you think, Matt? That's what I thought. I mean, I <laughs> thought I thought I was saying like, Rappo was like, well, what, 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 what was it like? I was like, well, I think it like made... LA into like kind of a breakfast town. I think like there's a lot more places. You look at Justa in Venice that is like, you know, uh, this kind of all day breakfast. Dude, that's like, but that is Venice. Like no one works in that. I go to like, you you go to Intelligentsia Uh, at Venice at like 3.30 p.m. Like who are all these people just hanking out? Like good looking guys with beards and like gals in tank tops and like, who, what? And Jake Gyllenhaal. And Jake Gyllenhaal. That's true. Uh, But I don't know, those people might have been in place to go order breakfast, but I don't think there was like a real breakfast culture Five years ago, besides like going to Shutters or something and meeting for a, a breakfast like at the hotel or power, power breakfasting, yeah. I think interesting. So there's power power breakfast, but not hipster breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I will say I did 
I worked in Melbourne for a time mm. where the breakfast culture, coffee yeah. culture is really Huge strong. Yeah. And I think coming from a place like that where Brecky is taken very she seriously. Just did the air I know. Quotes. I did the air quotes for Brecky. That's but, what they call it. You know. um, where it is taken seriously and it's unique. And I came back to the States and I, I did also feel that disconnect of like, all right, why is everyone playing so safe? And I've had this conversation where I have some fine dining chefs that are friends of mine and they're like, man, good on you. Breakfast is a hard game. Breakfast and lunch, hard game. Not No one's drinking alcohol. That's how people, can, restaurants stay open that's and make their money. Right that there, is right? your profit margin. And it's true. So what do we have to do? We have to make a place that's unique and exciting that people are willing to come and wait in line. Yeah. And, you know, our service isn't four hours, it's eight hours. And so that I think that's the difference. But in LA, we do have a creative culture. We have a lot more people that are freelance. What is it like to kind of like grow a project organically like you have? I mean, like you didn't start out knowing it was going to be what it is today. And I think like a lot of restaurants grow and evolve and like, you know, it's not fair to review a first a restaurant in the first six months because it's gonna change so much. But I think few restaurants change as like dramatically as yours has like in terms of scope and ambition is that exciting as you're going along or is that like flying by the seat of your pants a little bit or is that just kind of how it happened and you wouldn't do it again or i mean you know just like it's been interesting to watch but i wonder what it's like from your perspective i was so lucky because no one really knew who i was or what i was doing There's no expectations and there was no expect no friends and family opening the doors just opened um and so it has allowed me to evolve and the thing is is that I've slowly taken over the rest of the building and that's how I've been able to evolve. That space as a thousand square feet is not able to operate efficiently right. and to serve the kind of quality of food and the type of experience that I, I wanted. So yeah, it, it's just been lucky and happenstance that the building itself has allowed me to grow. So yeah. now instead of a thousand square feet, I have Mm, 6,000? Wow. Um, I think that gr that gradual growth is so essential. It's, it's interesting. You, you look at so many restaurants now and the amount of money that's invested and the pressure and the press coverage before, you know, opens, yeah. you know, it's not a knock against Eater, yeah. but it's what Eater does. But month by month, there will be updates if you're a big name chef, how the project's coming along. I went to last, when I was in LA last time, a couple of years ago, not going to Squirrel, um, I got taken to that restaurant, Republic? Republic? Mm -hmm. How do yeah. I pronounce that? Republic. Yeah. I mean, just like the amount of money they must have spent. The grandness. Yeah, of that restaurant. And, you know, it was packed and good for them. Um, and that was Nancy's old restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. That yeah. was Campanile. Uh, Campanile. But Most of the grandness was in place, luckily, for them. Yeah. They didn't do that much, actually, that space. No, I but that like. space but, needed work. Yeah, right. it, it, oh, yeah. It, I mean, they modernized it a lot. You know? And the open kitchen and everything when you yeah. walk in and the wood fire and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, it's like, and then you've just dropped a million or however much on a restaurant. And then right. you're like, wow, you better start killing it right, aw right away. A million, that's, that's like that's not even not a even lot. lot. Yes. And I think, I mean, something to say here is that I'm actually doing a project where I've swung the opposite way, where I do have a partner on uh, something else I'm doing. And there In is what town? Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Um, closer to where you typically oh, really? stay. Yeah. And <laughs> so now, now it's concerning, you know, like what do I do? Because I really liked the development and involvement of, of what Squirrel was. And I don't necessarily enjoy the press and PR. And now it's the restaurant from PR. the Squirrel person. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, you're I, gonna, that's a, sorry, but that's a ton of pressure and you're going to get I know. written about every five minutes. And, you and have this, destroyed. Yeah, and, yeah, they like to you take know? you down. But yeah, I mean, you have this quote in the new issue of Cherry Bomb. Which they 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 pull quoted. I yeah. kind of love. Um, 
I was so hot last year. How do you stay fucking hot? And like, that's true. It's like, there's, do you feel that pressure now? Yeah, of course. I think for me and again, like because I kind of work with these blinders, it's very helpful because there's something opening all the time. Eater is always talking about what's opening. And the question is always to me, like how do I stay true to myself and continue to evolve and continue to grow and make things unique? Um, in a landscape which kind of is begging chefs in some respect to kind of like take a deal, open yeah. up more and more and more places yeah. because it, you know, the the truth is is that sh- one restaurant doesn't make you a lot of money, but three or four or five or six will. But now you're beholden to a partner and that person, whoever this person is. She's amazing. Yeah, who I imagine is investing a fair amount of money to yes. open a place. And yeah. so then you've got to make money. Off the bat. Yeah, so, yeah. She's it's, really stressing her out. It's yeah, true. heart no, palpitations. It's, it's, and, wow. Look, and the thing too is like... Are you sure you don't want to rethink this? <laughs> yeah. It took me a long time to... I mean, she and I worked out what we're doing for the last, I mean, eight months. And like any other chef, I've been, I've been given a lot of opportunities. And um, this one was the right one. So Squirrel Away will open this year. It's yeah. the rest of the building. And then... Yeah. Uh, the, doing a book is yeah. Let's like, what's your book can next we year? Just, can we just no October? Well, this October. That's right. I know it's October. This is October sixteen. Yes, oh, October sixteen. Yeah, it was almost like opening a restaurant to do a book. Who did um, did you write with someone? I did. Uh, her name's Maria Ziska. Okay. She did Camino and AOC, and she's working on Liz Pruitt from Tartine's cool. new book. Mm-hmm. Love Liz. Um, how did yeah. how did how was the experience <laughs> for you? That was. The experience all in has been really empowering. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because I don't do anything half-assed. So, so I guess the backstory is, is that Squirrel, I have a friend named Scott, and Scott and I started Squirrel together. So I, he does all the design elements, like the website, the jars, posters, whatever. And I do the food and operations. And um, so he, you know, Squirrel is part partly his baby and he's also my creative director for the new project so he and I did the book together okay. <clears throat> so and he, did he so he handled the design elements of the book exactly so the thing is is that Abrams who's the publisher didn't touch any of the book like awesome. we did the fonts we did the layout yeah. um, all the photography came through us we have three photographers that did the um, photos so it was a production that he and I did together from page one to page 280 and it you know every choice from like the paper stock to whether it's auto bound the texture of the paper the jacket all those things were really micromanaged to to a level of hopefully you guys will really like this we're really proud of it the fact that you you were able to do that is is awesome did you learn something about you and your food when you're when you're having to go through this creative process to write the book did it did it illuminate anything that you maybe didn't see before or? Um... Yeah, I mean, a lot of the recipes are amazing and wonderful and I'm glad they're there. And of course, there are some where I'm like, oh man, I, I should have photographed this differently or tinkered with this differently. And I, or I have recipes now that I would have loved to have included sure. in there. Um, that's the next book. That's the next book, sure. I'm looking at the Bon Appetit magazine right now and there's a recipe or a, a photo of a dish that's no longer at the restaurant. And 
that was a classic at the time, but I have pulled it and I wouldn't have thought to even put it in the it's book because like like we've it's evolved. A, it's like that friend you broke up with. Yeah. Like we're not friends anymore. Oh, we're only on Facebook. <laughs> but it's, on Facebook. Yeah. it's interesting. You mentioned um, how to cook everything and that suggests a cookbook that people would use and um, a, 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 yeah, something that you, Doesn't just you sit cook on the with. Coffee table. And, but, it, yeah. but that's different though. But you also mentioned Kinch's book in Manresa and that is much more of an heirloom book about a Michelin starred restaurant mm-hmm. and it's big and it's beautiful and it's, it's more of a piece that you'd be proud of 20 years from now, but that's different than a book that people use. Sure. Yeah, I think there's, you know, a book, Brooke Headley's pastry book, yep. to me is one of the best books of the last 10 years. One reason is that, I mean, his viewpoint is just so unique. Well, he's a, and an his awesome voice writer. is such a, he's such he's a good so writer. powerful that you really know that it's Brooks when you read yeah. that. Um, now, the recipes, some are really challenging. And I think the book is the same way is that you know you look at a book like Jelena and it's very friendly and it's very accessible and so people really love it. I look at my book and I know I see the voice is so clear and yet some of the recipes I get the call from Holly at Abrams being like man some of these recipes are really challenging like you have some more accessible ones right? And the point is to make a book where it's maybe more like Jerusalem, where there are a lot of ingredients, and, or you can choose the step you want to make. You don't have to make Jerusalem all these... the Otolangi book, not Jerusalem the city. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, part of what's so exciting about Squirrel is that modifications are politely accepted. You know, and you're going to restaurants where it's politely declined a lot, and yeah. or not politely, or not honestly. sure. Yeah. And so the the book itself has to have that same kind of ethos where you can modify by doing this or that. Or you don't have, you know, like you don't have to smoke trout if you don't want to. Like Trader do Joe's you, has amazing tins. But do you make that point yes. to the reader? So you you uh, let them know that. Yes. Okay. See, that's I think that's always important yeah. as an editor. Always give people options. Make it okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's all right to take the shortcut, and it can still be a delicious dish. Mm-hmm. All right. So Jessica, you've obviously got a lot to do. You got a business to run. You got a new restaurant to open. You got a cookbook to get done. But it's before done. you go, we have to do the lightning round. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Christy Yamaguchi or Nancy Kerrigan? And why are we asking that question? <laughs> I grew up as a figure skater, so that's why you're asking. Did that you know question. that, Doctor? I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Christy Yamaguchi. Why? Just so classy, just mm. so graceful and classy. All right. Uh, turmeric tonic or gin and tonic? Mm, turmeric tonic. Come on. Turmeric mar- <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, turmeric tonic. With gin. Or oh. <laughs> gin martini. Oh, okay. That's your okay. question. Poached or fried? Um, depends. You get you get Whoa, one. You get on. one for the Guys, rest of your life. Fried, fried the right way. Fried in what? Fried the right way, which uh, is and what? butter and butter. Okay, yeah, but like I'm fried crisp. baked. No, like wait, no fried brown. baked. What does that mean? It means like you get it on the stove and going, and the then you transfer it into the yeah. oven. Wow. To, mm. So the white set. So the white set, you get, don't have brown anywhere. Yeah. It's gotta, I, this guy likes a crispy. I, at, I'm an olive oil guy, but I never knew this. What temperature do you put in the oven? 350. And for how long? Um, I mean, you literally keep it on the stove until you start to see the white set. And yeah. then you pop it into the oven. And for in the oven about? A minute. All right. Sorrel pesto or pesto pesto? Sorrel pesto. Mm, there's there's nothing better than basil pesto. Well, I'm sorry. Look, like there really is nothing better. Come it on. just depends. Wait till it you have sorrel pesto rapo. You're gonna you're gonna love this. Depends on the season. Um East Side or West Side? East side. And West Side. Wait, oh, come Whoa. on. Don't, don't, try wanna, to, don't try to She doesn't want to alienate her customers on the west side of Los Angeles yeah. that travel an hour to come have And uh, then breakfast. wait in line for a half an yeah. hour. Um, west side feels like vacation. East side feels like home. Hazelnut butter or almond butter? 
almond butter. I mean, our nut but you know that our nut butter at Squirrel is almond and hazelnut. Oh, um, savory or sweet? I grew up eating like bags of Sour Patch Kids. Mm. So and, you, uh, you just answered the question. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I, and ice cream is my desert island food, so I guess that's the answer. Okay, succulents or flowers? Uh, flowers. Yeah. They're a lot more expensive, though. Succulents kind of last forever, right? You just put them in the window of your it's little true, hipster so, healthy cafe yeah. and like, they're there. I, <laughs> um, recipe development or working the line? Um, you know what? Recipe development. And I'd like to expand on this. Yeah, sure. Because I have, my chefs really enjoy the recipe development of the day-to-day. Like, oh, I'm making a special. It's going to go on today. Like, yes. I really like the recipe development of dish, like of staples. And I think that that's something that um, a lot of chefs are like, ugh, like I, I want to keep evolving. And I do too, but I like to create things that have lasting impact, yeah. like a sorrel pesto or like the new chicken porridge. No, that's like I said, they, they, a good idea lasts forever. Huh. Yeah. All right, Matt, a couple more. All right. Lacto-fermented hot sauce or Cholula? Lacto-fermented hot sauce. I am not even thinking twice about that. Real. God, I mean, so I, confident. On, I yeah, love, we, but I do love Cholula. I love Cholula. Right yeah. It's so good. Guys. It's so good. <laughs> All right, last question. Olive oil or butter? You know, I love using butter. Mm. I also love using olive oil with butter when you're doing proteins yeah. to get a sear. Mm. A little finish. A little, mm. little depth. But, um, Yeah. So that's kind of a punt. You're punting on that one. You're. I love. I, what's look, your? Do, do, you got to choose one. I use butter. Okay. All right. Butter. Yeah. Proudly. I can't believe I use butter. I can't believe, I can't <laughs> believe it's butter. <laughs> All right, Jessica Kozlov, Matt Ducker. Thanks, guys. All right, that was Jessica Kozlov with Matt Ducker and me. Coming up next, we head to Las Vegas where Andrew Knowlton and I talked summer drinking with Bon Appetit wine columnist Marissa A. Ross. And one thing, if the sound is not as smooth and buttery as you're used to, that's because we recorded this segment in a suite in the Nobu Tower at Caesars Palace. So uh, not ideal audio conditions, but uh, we had a good talk anyways. Hope you dig it. All right, so Marissa, last summer I wrote a piece for the .com about how I was over rosé. Oh, yeah. That we had hit peak rosé and I just couldn't bring myself to buy another bottle last summer. Fair or unfair assessment? Absolutely fair. I felt the exact same way after last summer. I think the last summer was very much like rosé season. It like hit the fucking main. Excuse me. Yeah, you can Am say I that. Am I allowed to cuss? Yes, yes. All right, well, it hit the fucking mainstream and it was... Overload. It was way, way too much rosé. I felt the exact same. In fact, at the end of last summer, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to drink rosé ever again. I was so done with it, with the culture around it, and everything. It was too much. But It's not like you got tired of drinking rosé. Was it because everybody else was drinking rosé? I would say twofold to that. A, I did get tired of drinking rosé, but in April, when it finally started getting nice in New York... The first thing I did on the first nice day of, of, of spring was run to the wine store and buy a bottle of rosé. So It wasn't like a band thing where it's like, oh, everyone's listening to my favorite band, so I can't listen to it now. Right. It was that everyone was drinking rosé all the time without any sort of variation. And 
that's boring and just too much. Like the, the amount of rosé that people wanted to consume on a regular basis was way too much. Yeah, I think there was a little palate fatigue. Is that a phrase? Yes. Can I say that? I think, that's a, I think that we should start using that more often. Right. Yeah. But I will say a Cote de Provence rosé, I will happily drink any day of the week. I will happily drink it if I'm in Provence, especially. Well, yeah. But it's fascinating. I don't have you know numbers in front of me, but from a marketing perspective, it I, I thought it was, you would walk into a wine store and there would just now be a wall of rosé as soon as you walked yeah. in, and every hue and shade of pink to peach and whatnot to strawberry. Um, and it's it, kind of amazing. These sales of rosé worldwide, or at least in America, of worldwide rosé is must have just skyrocketed. No, it, it skyrocketed, and it was just fascinating to see brands that normally didn't do rosés jumping on the rosé bandwagon and producing some inferior stuff that was not even like the correct production and that's the problem too is it's people just now also just producing rosé because it is a thing yeah and as someone that lives in california i had no idea what rosé season was and then i went to new New york York in march (laughs) where everyone was like well aren't you so excited rosé season is coming and i'm like Wait, I, I don't. Really, I didn't know that there was a season for it because I drink it all the time. It's it, it, like I said. I, I kind of hit that peak rosé last summer, and I said I had to make a point. It's not easy to not drink a rosé because it's served everywhere. It's at every party, every menu. But I'm like, I'm gonna make a point to not drink it. Um, and I, my question to you is, Noten and Marissa, if you're not drinking rosé this summer, but you want that affordable, crisp, easy to drink bottle of wine, what are you drinking? Well, the same thing is happening with a red wine that I love, and I think Marissa likes it too, is the Gamay, the Beaujolais Mm, boom, Beaujolais Village. And I've been drinking that for a couple years, you know, once once more of these bottles beyond the Georges de Boeuf Beaujolais Nouveau came. So these are like really light, low-octane wines, really, I mean, if you close close your eyes, you wouldn't even know that you were drinking a red. It would feel like a white almost. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, about the whole Gamay uh, movement right now, which Gamay has been my favorite grape for a really long time. Um, I love it because it does sort of mimic white wine and rosé in a lot of ways in terms of drinkability. Uh, But you go to, you know, AOC in LA and they're like, oh, can we throw your Morgana on ice for a little while? And I'm like, wow, it's, it's incredible that they know, that, that they yeah. know, like everyone kind of knows what that do they know? They, I guess they know that you gotta, you can throw a Gamay on ice and it's delicious. And it's, it's as refreshing, I think, as a white wine. The question to you is if you're not drinking a rosé on ice, what is a white, what is a comparable wine that you're going to drink? Muscadet. I, I, all the really? time. Yeah. I drink that. If I'm having oysters or shellfish or grilling out, I think it's a perfect wine. Yeah, a peak pool, which is a French. Peak pool is a great and a, a kind of a lesser known wine that's really, really awesome and very like Sauvignon Blanc. Yes. but I think a little more complex. A little bit more flavor, but and a Muscadet is a, an affordable white French wine, uh, yeah. easy to find. What region is it from? Mostly uh, Brittany, though. I mean, it's yeah. kind yeah. of match made in heaven with briny oysters and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah, and and they're affordable. They're super affordable. Um, just like peak pools are. Too. Yeah, peak pools are great. I'm I'm always gonna say, Vino Verde, um, and like Chenin Blanc is like what I would drink right. instead of. I mean, Chenin's just go with everything. It's funny that Chenin Blanc, something that was so kind of naughty to drink Chenin yeah. Blanc, it was like the the housewife, you know, yeah. or the, and now it's kind of coming back. Explain that reference. Well, to me. I think well, no, no, when Chenin like Chenin Blanc became. I don't want to say it was like the Chardonnay before Chardonnay became Chardonnay, but it was like... Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as that. It was like ladies who lunch would drink, I'll have a Chenin Blanc, you know? And it... 
And I actually think they made like wine coolers out of shitty. They, yeah, they Blanc. did. Yeah. And so it got this reputation. But there's some of the most amazing French wines are made from the Chenin Blanc grape. Well, and now too, I think with the whole uh, like low intervention movement that's happening, I think that Chenin Blanc is really getting reinvented through that, uh, where they're a lot crisper, tartar, um, brighter than some of the Chenin Blancs of right. yesteryear. Talk about like wine coolers and stuff. I will basically spritz up any cocktail. I will put club soda on anything and, and ice. I think it makes it better. But I've actually never had a wine spritzer. I have I've some never... in my room. I could have brought them. Really? I have but... them in a can. But like, what do you ever spritz up wine? Yes. Like, and if so, what kind? No, I don't. No, if I, if no, I don't no. spritz something up, I'm having a, a liquor. As someone that uh, <laughs> you're gonna spritz up some gin. Yeah. <laughs> As someone that drinks during the day often while writing, it's very beneficial for me to spritz things up. And those light reds are great for spritzing. So yeah, right. so you can spritz up a red. Oh yeah, like Gamay. I mean, Gamay is just like an all-around great, but right. you could do it with like any of those lighter French reds. Like you could do it with like Grelot or any of those. And like, will, you, will you do them, will you put them in ice in the glass? I, I usually do, well, and to be totally honest, I usually spritz up wines that I don't like so much. Uh. Like if I get a bottle of something that I'm very iffy about, I'll add, you know, half a, half a can of right. LaCroix and throw some ice on it and then like mash up whatever fruit is in my fridge. I was going to say, you basically take, you know, a red that you're not crazy about yeah. or something that's not, that you didn't spend, you know, $25 on, spritz it up, add, you know, um, you're basically making sangria or some yeah. sort of gin and tonic and you're, you're putting all those kind of botanicals in there and orange slices. You can put anything and make, yeah. you know, yeah. it's kind of but You always want to do, yeah, you always want to do like citrus, like everything yeah. should always have like a little bit. Of, I always do uh, lemon or lime, whether I'm doing um, red or white. Really? Yeah. Always I feel like a little this, bit. I feel like I've not introduced this at all. Club soda and uh, then some, what'd you say? What lemon, you lime, and then orange, like strawberries, strawberries, cantaloupe. Yeah. Wow. And you know something I do, which is getting into more sangria territory i will even hit a little hit a little sherry in there to make it with a red just to make it even more cocktail like wow if you're making sangria though sangria is typically sweetened correct in some manner yeah typically you add sugar to it yeah like i i remember did you ever go to rio mar nolton when it was open in the west village and in the meatpacking district back when there were actual meatpacking in the meatpacking district and there was this great old spanish bar slash restaurant um and the sangrias there were great. And I actually watched them one time make it. And it was basically like a whole, like one of those handles of big Pe- jug Pepe reds. Rosa. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, a, yeah, and then, I mean, it was like that and a bottle of Sprite. And like, I mean, or maybe it was like some triple sec. I mean, it was insane oh, like what went in there. I was like, oh my God. But it's funny to watch people who even say they don't like sangria when it's like sangria, they don't have to order and it's just presented at a party. People love oh, yeah. sangria. Oh, they love it. Yeah. And I, I think... Like, I like a, I like the notion of a white sangria. Well, I was just about to say is that um, in like probably the last two years, I've seen like a big boom in white sangria in in terms of like it being um, at parties, but also in restaurants in LA right. are very big on white sangria right now, and it's great. It's just a little bit more refreshing, I think, than red sangria. Well, you apparently you have some sparkling wine here. I do. Yeah. It's what do you got? It's coming to temperature. Actually. I think it's a good temperature <laughs> now. Um, so I have the ultramarine um, sparkling Pinot Noir from Sonoma. Um, it's made by Michael Cruz. When I go to weddings now, and it's like, well, you go to one of those July-August weddings where cocktail hour, the sun is still like beating down on your head and you're like getting sunburned and stuff. I will just ask for a big goblet full of ice and then just full of Prosecco. You need to get over your guilt that you feel you can do whatever you want yeah. with ice. No, Adam. but I'm telling, I'm not feeling guilty. I'm saying everyone should oh, do this. Oh, but you always, yeah. you're always apologizing for your use of ice in beer or cocktails. Well, you it, put ice in beer? Yeah. 
That's interesting. I'm proselytizing because, like, on a hot wedding afternoon, like you're walking around with some champagne and prosecco, and it's going to be warm, like, oh, in four I, minutes. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so well, I, I think that the stigma that. around you know ice and wine just needs to go. Yeah, I just think that if you, if that's how you enjoy something, just enjoy it, mm-hmm. and to hell with anyone that wants to. I yeah, and I also you know. think that this is a different topic, but I just think that Americans are finally. Drink what you want to drink and how you want to drink it. If you want vodka, drink vodka. If you want a oaky Chardonnay that nobody in their right mind should be drinking, drink it. You know, uh-huh. like, who cares? <laughs> the French do that all the time. Just don't force it on someone else. I have a yeah. friend yeah. who I'm not going to name, but um, <laughs> we were visiting her last summer on Shelter Island in New York. Um, and she literally only drinks Pim's Cups. Which I respect is, that. Usually Pims and either like ginger ale or Sprite yeah. or whatever, yeah. and then cucumber and strawberries. Stuff in there, yeah. So that if she like she came to our house for a barbecue, she literally brought her own bottle of Pims. I that's like that. great. I, I like think that. that that's so smart because there's so many people that. I mean, like, it's weird because I get people that ask me about that. Like, well, what do you do if like you're somewhere? Bring your own. Yeah. Like, if you really have something that you love and you, if you think your shit's better. Yeah, than that. just bring. Your, I mean, I bring my own stuff everywhere. I brought my own stuff today. Yeah. So I mean, what are we drinking? What do we got? Um. So today I brought us the Ultramarine uh, Pinot Noir Rosé. It's from Sonoma Coast, oh. and um, it's made by Michael Cruz, who is a really, really awesome winemaker out of California. Um, he's and spell his last name so people. C R U S E, and yes. he has a. Um, he has a cruise wine company. Uh, this is different. Ultramarine is um, its own thing. But all of his wines, I think, are just extremely well-crafted and special. And particularly, these sparkling wines are um, one of the harder ones of his to get. But it's what he's making his name off of. Like He's really bringing a lot of artis- artisanship uh, back to California sparkling wine. You have to uncork it in the microphone so we can pop. Should I do that now? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Good. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, It's a sparkling rosé. Correct. So Uh, these cruise wines, I will say, they've started to pop up on the on the East Coast. Okay. There's a lot of them. It's a it's a name to look for, and if you see it on a wine list, get it because it's only going to go up in price. Making California cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, When I came into the office in December, I I brought in that Saint Laurent that I couldn't believe that I saw that that I saw in New York. When you said Saint Laurent, I thought you were joking and making fun of me for like in the Saint Laurent fashion label. No. There's actually a wine called Saint Laurent. No, there's a grape varietal called Saint Laurent. It um, used to be extremely prominent in California and then they basically ripped it all out for to make room for Cabernet and so now um, it's it's one of the California varietals that a lot of uh, smaller wineries are bringing back um, it's, it's awesome it's a really light nice grape so Enjoy. I just tasted this ultramarine Pinot Noir Rosé Sparkler um, I think this would be a good food wine is that fair to say got some body to it's, it it's got some it's it's rich it's yeah. got a richness to it but it's got some crazy acidity too I'm so excited to try this right now. I've been saving this. I've had this for a while. You know, I love drinking champagne at with any food. Yeah, know, me too. Period. Me too. Absolutely. Whether it's pizza or foie gras. Champagne goes with everything. Yes. This wine in particular, the cruise, or not the cruise, but... Uh, the, the ultramarine, yeah. The ultramarine, um, I think it would be amazing with sushi. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think that rosé and sushi is like my, my favorite in terms of wine with sushi. Thanks for joining us today. Go drink some summer wine. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by Belle Cushing and Carrie Polis, with editing by Muj Zaidi and additional help from Christina Che and Lily Sherman. 
Our theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us anything about this or any episode, please email us at bonapetitfoodcast at gmail.com.